there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. An average movie ticket was $2.50. A gallon of gas was $1.10. And the number one song in the country was Cindy Lauper's Lovely Time After Time. The second hand unwind. If you're lost, you can look and you will find me. Time after time. It was a turbulent month for global politics. Indira Gandhi ordered an attack on the Golden Temple, setting off a deadly Sikh uprising, while Pierre Trudeau stepped down as prime minister in Canada after serving for 15 years. On the TV game show Press Your Luck, a contestant named Michael Larson managed to win a record-busting $110,000 by memorizing the supposedly impossible-to-memorize pattern of the whammy. I still wish Bill Murray had made the movie he wrote about this thing. For the very first time, DNA was cloned from an extinct animal, and I assume John Hammond was involved. Tetris was released in the Soviet Union, another of their fiendish schemes to waste American hours, and Donald Duck turned 50 years old, complete with an elaborate birthday party at Disneyland. All of this unfolded while moviegoers were busy getting rocked by one of the biggest months of the decade. We have finally reached June of 1984. Hi, everybody. I'm Drew McQueenie, and welcome to 80s All Over. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. Scott, how are you, sir? You know, it's like a video game where you have to hit like a certain checkpoint to move on. We've had a couple of checkpoints, but this is a big one. Conversation online since our last episode went up, uh, especially about Temple of Doom, has been pretty lively. And one of the things that I didn't even mention last time that was a big part of what we're going to talk about this month is how all the peripheral stuff kind of got me wired into Temple of Doom. Do you remember all the interviews at the time that they did with Kihoi Kwan about how he got the job, how he improvised the scene with Harrison Ford where he was cheating at cards and then it ended up in the movie? Those types of things were so important to me as a film fan that summer. This is when I remember giving money hand over fist to magazines and books and soundtracks and toys and anything because it felt like they had just opened the skies up and everything was being made for me. For me, this month was, again, just because I'm a couple of years behind you, visiting a brand new country and you're just everywhere you turn is something new and exciting. When I look back at this month now, there's films here that I ended up having relationships with later that had nothing to do with June of 84, and there's films that I never saw until just now for this episode. And it's amazing to me how much you can pack into just over 20 titles in a month. But if there's ever been a month that I think makes the case for what you and I started this podcast for, it's this month. Let's start June of 84 with a handful of smaller, lesser known, and imported films. Drew, let's start off with an Australian film called... Careful, he might hear you. Are you P.S. by any chance? 
she going to take you away forever? No, she's just going to borrow me. You'll never get P.S. I despise you. I despise you! I won't go away on that boat. Look at me, P.S. Tell my sister he's not going back. If you do not return the infant, Miss Scott will appeal to the Supreme Court for full guardianship. He doesn't need two guardians. And if Sindon knew it was Vanessa, she'd die. Sindon is dead. Careful, he might hear you. It's an interesting, weirdly toned little drama about a kid who is stuck in the middle of a custody battle. Both of his his aunts after his mother passes, and it's who's going to end up with him. And one home is more affluent than the other. And it's really about what is best for a child when the child has very little agency in any of the decisions being made. What I like about it, it kind of almost plays like a morality tale of like a fairy tale. Even the more well off aunt is not necessarily the best one for the child. I do like that a lot of it feels like it is the child's perspective. So the adult world happens around him. Yeah, it's it's interestingly made. I think more than anything, it feels like a showcase for a director because so much of the movie is built around a child's performance where the director's doing a lot of the work. Based on a very popular novel, worth mentioning. Let's move on to something also from overseas. This is a British drama, and it's got a really interesting cast. Let us talk briefly about Another country. Hazard! Out! You were a disgrace to the house, you were a disgrace to the entire school. I reckon that's worth the full six strokes. I just thought you ought to know. I should go straight to Mr. Farkson and uh, give him the names of all the people I've. <laughs> You've no idea what life in England in the 1930s was like. I know way too much about the English boarding school system for somebody who never went to English boarding school and has no experience with English boarding school. This is a tale of expectations versus delivery. If you were to say, hey, Scott, are you interested in a slightly prim and proper British drama about 1930s boarding school and the upper class snobs who dwell within? I'd say "Mm, probably not. Well, it stars a very young Colin Firth, Rupert Everett, and Carrie Elwes, all three whom are quite good. Then I dug a little deeper and I realized that it's a fictional retelling of a true life gentleman who defected from Great Britain many years ago and was a spy for Russia. So once I had that real life context. Well, it's an origin story at that point. You know, how do you end up a gay Marxist? There's interesting subtext here. I don't know that I think the film is necessarily the most compelling way to dramatize a lot It ambles of a little, but I'm watching it and I'm thinking, it would be interesting to pair this movie and what it deals with and its politics and its socio-political uh, themes. We'd pair this up against like Taps or Lords of Discipline. One of them seems to be dealing with, you know, real life politics and real life issues. And the other is more like, you know, G.I. Joe. Also, the pressures are a lot the same because you're putting these young kids under the supervision of other kids who have been through this system and who have been hazed in their way and who then hand the hazing down. It's just the different system. So here we see what the English school system, the private school system did to those kids. And we see in TAPS what the military system did. And I do think there's some value in that. I also think there's an awful lot of drama made about English boarding schools and I can imagine if you are from a cultural background 
where the entire idea of the the moneyed caste system of England is alien to you. These films have got to be like science fiction. They've just got to be set on another planet. But you see a lot of echoes in these films that are about young men in boarding schools. And it always seems to stem from uh, they rebel against the authoritarianism that they are either forced into or initially wanted. There are certain cultural experiences that have been more overshared than others. And I think there's a disproportional amount of English school drama considering how many people around the world aren't English school kids and have never gone through it. I would recommend it. I don't love it. Yeah, the the stuff about the pressures of being gay in that in that environment is interesting and it's well handled and there's some heavy duty stuff in there and yeah, it's worth it's worth a look. And now it's time for everyone's favorite television show. Drew said it's a movie, but it's actually a TV movie. <laughs> well, released theatrically in America, so it does count here. Ingmar Bergman's After the Rehearsal. Woody Allen is such a huge fan of Ingmar Bergman and has referenced him in his work, and I think his work is in many ways a response to some of Bergman's work, and there's certainly movements of Allen's career where it feels like he was chasing what Bergman was doing. And I think the big difference between the two of them, and it really took a film like this one for me to watch now as an older man, is I think Bergman is Alan with a conscience. This film is a confessional piece in a lot of ways. It's very personal. It's a difficult piece, a extension of August Strindberg's a dream play. And then the film is what happens at the end of the rehearsal is there is an ongoing conversation between a young actress and her director you could leave it at that, uh, but I think that doesn't quite explain what the movie is. And what the movie is, I think, is somebody looking back, using the framework of a piece of drama that they're going to stage, and then using that as a framework to discuss all of their own flaws and faults and personal sins and their failings. And I think this is a lacerating film. I think Bergman talks about his tendency to sleep with his lead actresses, uh, to exert power over them. I think if you wanted to watch this film from the context now of directors who we are starting to have this conversation about or executives or filmmakers after the rehearsal is somebody who knows that they've been on the wrong side of that equation dealing with that. There is a choice that's made towards the end of this film in which an actress explains how much she's willing to do something for a play, how much of herself she's willing to give. And it raises a monstrous question about how much of yourself to give to art. It's, it is an older man's work in the sense that there is real thematic heft, clearly the, the thoughts of somebody who has gone through a life of work and is now reflecting on it. This has been Drew McLeany with, <laughs> I called it a movie, but it's actually a TV movie that runs 69 minutes in total. Uh, and boy, did that make a nice appetizer for our next film, which really pairs beautifully with it. Let's talk about the executioner part two. When crime took over the city, he came to we clean are. it up. Muggers, rapists, and thugs, beware. Death wish started him. The Exterminator continued. The Executioner Part 2 will finish it. He's ready to make their day night. Down in the alley, upon the rooftops, he's watching. He's waiting, and he will blow them away. 
he's coming to a theater near you. Rated R from 21st Century. Drew. <laughs> first of all, first of all, Scott, is this a sequel? <coughs> nope. Nope. Uh, that part two is one of the weirdest things they could have put on this film. And you want to talk not a movie? <laughs> this, this is barely functionally I will give a film. you that Ingmar Bergman's after the rehearsal <laughs> is more of a motion picture than is the executioner part two. You you win again, Moriarty. <laughs> oh, this is bad. All right, well, it's called the executioner part two. Research indicates that this was made two years earlier and the exterminator had just been a cult hit and they, some smart producer realized that if we call something the executioner part two, people won't remember that it was called the exterminator. <laughs> and, and they'll, like, I don't know if that's true. That may be apocryphal, but I love uh, that. My favorite thing about this movie is how when the guy kills people, he goes, I'm the executioner. And it's clearly dubbed later. And it was just so they had an excuse to call it. Or the news will go, oh, the executioner killed somebody. He's the executioner. It's so lazy. <laughs> If you had this poster framed on your wall as like a piece of mid-80s, low-budget kitsch, it's a great poster. Oh, terrific poster. And Now, here's the thing, Scott. Back when I was 14, I guess, when I lived in Chattanooga, they took us to the paper, and I got to interview or, or meet the guy who ran the local film department, and he told us about how press kits worked and about how they got their information from studios, and he had a stack of press kits he was getting rid of, and he said, any of these you want. And I was like, I will take all of them. Give them all to me. <laughs> and so he gave all of the f- press kits to me, and I took them home. And for months, I went through the stills and the everything and just inhaled those press kits, every element of them. It didn't matter what it was for. So I had a press kit for The Executioner Part 2. Had never seen the film until now, but remembered the cover and was sure it was going to be better than this. It was not. <laughs> it's, so, it's just so cheap. It really, uh, I mean, not yeah. not to be unkind, but it really looks like somebody with access to an alley and a camera, just basic death wish knockoff. You are executed because I am the executioner. You are executed. All right. Well, you know what you are, Drew? <laughs> what am I? You are the naked face. From Sidney Sheldon's shocking bestseller, The Naked Face. <laughs> Suspect or victim, Roger Moore walks the tightrope of terror in The Naked Face. Written for the screen and directed by Brian Forbes. A Golan Globus production coming from Canon. What if I told you that we have a film starring Rod Steiger, Ann Archer, Elliot Gould, David Edison, and Art Carney. You'd be down for that, right? Oh, but wait. Oh, I might. But the lead is Roger Moore. Mm-hmm. First of all, Brian Forbes, the director of this movie, made some decent films. He's not a terrible filmmaker. Stepford Wives is probably his best movie, in my opinion. Yeah, Stepford Wives is not bad. Saying it's on a wet afternoon is okay. King Rat's okay. Like, he's done some fine things. This is... Um this is not good at all. And it's based on the very first novel by Sidney Sheldon, first published novel by him. I've got to assume the book is junk. This feels like sort of a dry run for. Oh, I would love that on the poster. The Naked Face coming soon to a theater near you. I got to assume the book is junk. Drew McQueen. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> it's a, it's a psychiatrist who one time testified against a police officer in a case. And as a result, when somebody turns up dead in his office, Drew, don't, don't strain anything. Roger Moore is a psychiatrist suspected of a murder. That's it. There's the, there's your plot. Was, okay. Didn't we just cover this last year, but it was a comedy? No. No, it was a, a still the night. So, okay. So a, a client of Roger Moore's is stabbed right out on the street. And then almost immediately, the two cops show up. And let me tell you something. This is not a good movie. But if you were to watch The Naked Face and turn up the volume just a little bit when the two cops played by... Rod Steiger and Elliot Gould. When they are on screen, this is the best cop show we never got a spinoff from. Elliot Gould playing it totally laid back, kind of good cop. And then they cut to Rod Steiger and he's like, yo, son of a bitch bastard. You did it. I know you did it. There's blood on your face right now. I mean, this might be the movie that got him all those overacting gigs later in the decade. It's a remarkable trio of crazy performances because Elliot Gould... It's not a bad performance, but it's crazy when you set it next to Rod Steiger because he's not reacting to how insane Rod Steiger is. Exactly. Roger Moore kind of does. And then you throw in Art Carney as the detective who gets hired to investigate this thing while the two cops are also investigating it. And Art Carney is in another television show that's totally different again. It's such a weird collision of things. This is uh, Roger Moore did this movie between Octopussy and View to a Kill. I like Roger Moore. He's like a Shatner type. Nobody would ever accuse him of being Olivier, but very likable as a movie star, right? Yeah, he's a charming movie star. He has his niche. And in this film in particular, he walks through this movie as if he's trying to blame a fart on someone else. And Ann Archer... Oh, my. Uh, throw away. It's almost like they were halfway through the movie and they went, we don't have one woman in this movie. It's also a crazy relic of a period before police work kind of grew up. Police still thought that psychological profiling and psychiatrists were just crazy people. And so Rod Steiger's like, you head shrinker, you crazy head shrinker. Yeah, All be, through the movie. Yeah, Steiger has a bone to pick because... Roger Moore, the psychiatrist, was once a character witness for a mentally ill person who got off on that case. But if you really dig all those actors that we mentioned, it's not unwatchable. And I will say, if I had seen this film when I was younger, the final scene that Elliot Gould is in would have given me nightmares for years. <laughs> not kidding. You know what I'm saying, right? Okay. Yeah. La yeah. Last note, and, and this is like a fun interactive thing that I would like to do with our listeners. Find the opening credits to The Naked Face and tell me if you can't sing the title of the film along to this score so perfectly that you think that he wrote lyrics and they just pulled them at the last minute. The Naked Face. Yeah, I, I can hear the naked face. I, uh, I I think you are correct. All right. Well, from the naked face, we move to a film with the same amount of syllables in the title. It's Rutger Hauer in A Breed Apart. On Cherokee Island lives a man whose life is a secret and whose soul is a fortress. Only two people can reach him. A woman who desires him. You never even touch me. And a man who may betray him. Alone, each is a force of nature. 
together they are a breed apart. Rutger Hauer. Hauer's Booth. Boy, are we good. Kathleen Turner. A breed apart. Here's my experience with the opening credits of A Breed Apart. Wait, Kathleen Turner's in this. Wow, okay. Well, Powers Booth. All right. The credits start playing. There's this long list. Donald Pleasance is in it. Long list of people that sound interesting. I'm like, wow, this sounds kind of interesting. It gets to the very end of the opening credits. I am on board, and I am curious. And then the last credit comes up, directed by Philippe Mora. And I have never felt more kicked in the nuts by a momentary surprise. And then... He shocked me because it's a pretty decent little movie. Yes, exactly. I would say I've seen probably 10 or 12 of this Schlockmasters filmography. We've already covered The Beast Within and Return of Captain Invincible. This is probably his best movie. It is the one that actually plays as a film and is fairly interesting and uh, has a Kathleen Turner performance I didn't even know existed where she plays a Southern tomato. And I am startled by her accent because it's a weird choice Discover, watching and discovering this film and noticing that she's in it, it was of course a delight not well written not a pretty good performance and her character is more or less pointless even though she seems to exist as like the fighting point between our two leads but that really goes nowhere Late in the film, there's a romantic subplot that is done so <laughs> mawkishly. Bizarre. There's a bizarre sequence in a barn. I mean, just when the movie is just about Rucker Hauer as a, a kind of kooky uh, Vietnam veteran slash conservationist who is on this mountain and he's protecting these birds from Powers Booth, who is, who is being paid by the awesomely evil Donald Pleasance to steal these very, very rare eagle's eggs. And you think, okay, there's a setup for a good thriller. And then you also have Brian James, the late, great <laughs> Brian James, as a piece of shit who makes trouble for everybody. And it causes a brawl, one brawl between two men that single-handedly destroys an entire store. It's got some nice uh, cinematography. It's a passable time waster. I wouldn't call it something that you have to dig up immediately. It's a perfectly serviceable little thriller. And you know what else is fun, Drew? Oh my goodness, what's fun, Scott? We already covered Breaking, and that to me was it was so much fun rediscovering that. Now we move on to a hip-hop breakdancing film that I had never seen. And it is fantastic. It is called Beat Street. <laughs> on a New York City street with a smoking fucking beat. They used to hang out all night and just gang fight, leaving bodies all over the street. But now it's hip-hop breakdancing pop. Just won't stop. Everything in the town is built around that cutting, scratching, the hip hop sound on Beat Street. Beat Street! Kenny is a DJ known as Double K, and he says he's gonna make it someday on Beat Street. Beat Street! Beat Street was the big studio one. This is the one that the studio kind of took the gamble on. Harry Belafonte producing and producing all the music to go with it. And then, of course, Breakin' snuck into theaters first and beat them there. I think Beat Street has things that work. It's overthought and overproduced. It's clearly trying to be sort of an authentic snapshot of this moment as mainstream entertainment figures out what to do with this brand new thing. Inspired by a documentary called Style Wars and no doubt the film we uh, reviewed a while back called Wild Style. And if you're interested in the origins of hip hop, those are two films you need to dig up. 
plot-wise, it is just about an aspiring DJ who's trying to turn people on to music. That's it. I mean, there's nothing to it. It's him trying to make his break in the DJ field. It was co-written by Andrew Davis, who we know from many films, including The Fugitive, Above the Law, was going to direct it. Producers realized that he was white and wanted a black person to direct this film. I don't know if that's true. That's what my research indicates. Um, but Andrew Davis is still credited as a co-writer and would, of course, go on to a great career. This was directed by one Stan Lathan, who is one of the most prolific TV directors you will ever see. This is the first performance from Ray Dawn Chong since Quest for Fire. She's so charming. Uh, I think when the movie got dull, I think Ray Dawn Chong is what kept me interested. You know, much like Wild Style. It's got some early cool mode D that is so Good. Oh, dude, it's the, the fact that you have, you know, the Treacherous Three represented. You got Africa Mombata in here. What I am most interested by looking at it now is watching them try to figure out how to shoot the actual breakdancing because they didn't know yet. Like, they've got a scene here where they uh, have them breakdancing on glass floors and they're shooting from underneath. And that's that's certainly an interesting approach because you're getting the whole dancer in the frame, but it's a different angle. And you see them really trying to figure out, okay, this is new, so how do we do it, and how does it fit into what we're used to doing? That stuff fascinates me. And there's a feeling in this like they're showing off, and it's exciting. This is not filmmakers trying to force feed the Lombada trend. This is a, like, oh, my God, this train is coming, and we would like to be a part of it, not let us fabricate something for the young audience. Yeah, I'm less interested in the motives of the old white studio filmmakers who funded it than I am in the performers who realized what an opportunity it was and 100% grabbed that moment. And that's what it feels valuable for. Just being able to look back at ground zero of a new art form is fun. All these things collided at this one particular time and place. It's such a vital moment. So now, Drew, we move on to a film I had never seen before. What is this? The Karate Kid? Points or no points, you're dead meat. I don't have much of a cheering section. You got me. In the end, it will be in Daniel's hands. In his body. And most of all, in his mind. Concentrate, focus, power. Remember, balance. No mercy. Columbia Pictures presents The Karate Kid. Hey, what kind of belt do you have? JCPenney, 398. <laughs> I, I think it's safe to say you and I both have affection for this movie, both with nostalgia and considering it a well-made sports film, melodrama, teen movie. How is this film anything other than Rocky Jr.? Right down to the idea that they got John Avildsen to direct it. I don't think they hired him by mistake. I think they knew exactly what they were trying to make, but I think the difference is the details and specifically choices that they made regarding Mr. Miyagi. There's a long tradition of writing these characters. Yoda's drawn from this, this tradition. Wise teacher who starts by appearing like a fool or he infuriates a student or he is frustrating because they don't understand what he's doing. Nobody invented these tricks. The Karate Kid draws from a very long tradition of all sorts of different things, sports films and Zing Cohen's, and it consolidated it all in a way that was very character-driven and that, like many of the most resonant movies of the 80s, gave us a chance to see ourselves in the scenario. I think I learned good things, good lessons from this movie. 
looking back on this film with fresh eyes, I kept waiting for like some uh, some misstep or some. You talked about Mr. Miyagi. I there's always a twinkle in his eye and a real sense of humor. The sense of humor, I think, is what makes Mr. Miyagi so much more impactful or, or so much more respectable than any other Asian caricature is that he's not some untouchable superhuman man. He is a normal flesh and blood man who just happens to be very skilled and very warm hearted. I think it is worth pointing out how head on the Karate Kid is in tackling sort of some toxic masculine ideas that were already starting to take hold in the 80s. I don't think there were many films that had the clarity to point at them quite as much as this one does. It's really no wonder that if you've watched Cobra Kai, the series that exists now that YouTube Red is doing that is based on this, it is so smart in what it is taken from the original film, and it didn't have to invent it. When you go back and you look at the original film, it's all in there. Johnny is not just the easy bad guy. There is Martin Cove's character above him who is reinforcing these ideas and selling these ideas. And that notion of which teacher or which mentor you listen to, how vitally important that is, is built into the Karate Kid and is beautifully realized in what a piece of shit the message is. Everything that Cobra Kai says is toxic and awful. It makes sense why a kid would listen to it, what it gives to them. And it shows that these kids get something from the wrong side and the right side. It's it's a really smart film. There are times in Karate Kid where I wish it had been more about this unspoken animosity between Miyagi and Kreese. Uh, but it is about a young boy who is bullied, who is misunderstood, treated poorly, and wants to fight back. He is not an aggressor. He wants to defend himself. He wants to, you know, just be safe. Uh, and he meets a girl and he butts heads with the wrong kid. And, you know, it, it's all done in a very realistic way as a guy who has like said the wrong thing at the wrong time and then made a, an enemy for six months to a year because now this this big bully thinks I'm a wise ass who was being whatever. You're not my psychiatrist, Drew. I don't have to explain this to you. <laughs> but as a guy who's like had bullies mess with him and be mean to him consistently, this movie spoke to me like, whoa, I knew guys like Johnny. And Robert Mark Kamen, who wrote this film, yeah, in some ways, it's very formulaic sports movie, but it's also very honest about like a lonely kid. Machio is, uh, Machio has such a narrow range. I don't think he's an actor who has a limitless bag of tools, but boy, when you cast him right, it pays off, and I think he's great in The Outsiders. I think he's great here. I think Elizabeth Shue is really well cast, and there is something appealing about her. Again, it undermines so much of what the decade reinforced, which was the pursuit of money and the pursuit of status and the pursuit of certain things, and her character exists almost solely to refute that. I, I don't believe in any of this, and I don't want this, and this world is gross. And that's really the only function of her character. You didn't have to put that in there, because so much of the 80s was about servicing that want to be a Reagan Republican. So it's an interesting film, and the, the blue collar is centered in it. It endlessly pushes towards decency and kindness as the thing that Miyagi has that distinguishes him. And I don't think those were common ideas in the 80s, and I don't think the film really got credit for being as gentle in spirit as it was. Yeah, it's a crowd pleaser. And my theory is that nine times out of 10, you don't get a crowd pleaser if the characters 
aren't there. You, there is no reason for an audience to cheer at the end if they don't care about Miyagi and Daniel. Uh, I remember very clearly walking out of Karate Kid uh, on Bustleton Avenue in Philadelphia like, <laughs> I was so pumped up. Try to be best because you're only a man and a man's got to learn to take it. Try to believe though the going gets rough that you got a hand tough to make it. History repeats itself, try and you succeed. Never doubt that you're the one and you can have your dream. You're the best around. Mother's gonna ever keep you down. You're the best One of my favorite things about it, and I have a real fondness for any film that does this, but holy crap do I love the way this thing ends. Because it ends, he kicks Johnny in the face, they hand him a trophy, Johnny smiles at him, cuts to Pat Morita, Bam! 13 seconds later, you're in the parking lot. It is crazy how fast this movie gets out. And I think there is something, too, when you have a moment that makes your audience go berserk and stand up and cheer, get out of the theater while you can. And I think there's a real brilliance to the way this film cuts almost to hard black. Equally brilliant is how the Karate Kid Part 2, a la Halloween 2, picks up in that exact parking lot immediately after. Yeah, it's a very, very smart start. Speaking of movies that pick up seconds later. All that they've loved, all that they've stood for, will now be put to the test. The word, sir, the word is no. I am therefore going anyway. Join us on this, the final voyage of the Starship Enterprise. Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Rated PG starts today at a theater near you. I think this is a great movie. I think this is a great science fiction adventure movie. Not quite as uh, rock'em sock'em as part two and not quite as funny as part four, but it, it has a really good pace. All, most of the characters are given something great to do. Uh, I gotta say, I think it's really strange that you got Chris Lloyd as a Klingon. Oh, he's a great Klingon. It is a pretty wild Klingon bridge when you got John Larroquette and Christopher Lloyd both rocking the makeup and you get the crazy Klingon dog there and and they're in kind of their own movie. The Klingons are their own sort of thing that collides with this film about two thirds of the way through. I'm probably most entertained when the Klingons are right in the midst of this one because that's where it feels like everything kind of picks up and gets crazy. It feels like yesterday when I was watching this movie at 12 years old and I realized the switcheroo that they were doing, what they would have to do to the ship I had only seen Star Trek 1 and 2. I, I wasn't deeply in love with this franchise or anything. And even I was, like, blown away by what happens at the end of this movie. My God, Bones. What have I done? What you had to do. What you always do. Turn death into a fighting chance to live. The kind of balls it took to kill Spock in one film destroy the Enterprise in the next movie, and then in the next film after that, have no Enterprise at all for an entire Star Trek movie. That is a crazy decision on paper. It works because they steered into what you were talking about with Karate Kid, which is they realized people just want to hang out with the crew. They really just want to hang out with the crew when they like them. And the main reason that that middle run of Wrath of Khan, Search for Spock, and Voyage Home is so beloved is 
I think because it is the peak of them writing for those characters where everybody gets their happy days moment. Everybody gets to walk in, have the crowd go ape shit and have them wave at the crowd and then do something. Whether it's Sulu when he comes in in his cape, whoever it is, they all get their moment and they all basically turn to camera and go, how you doing? I'm here. And it's fine. It's fun. That's what you want by this point. So while I don't know if I think Star Trek three is a particularly good movie overall, what I think it does really well is it for a couple of hours, you just hang out with them while they do stuff and everybody gets to play. This is them riffing off of an unexpected success because Star Trek two was kind of an act that was made for television, dude. They were making that for their TV division because they had so little faith in it. Four is the one that I used to have the biggest problem with because I thought it was too funny. But I can see now that what it is, is them finally just giving the audience what they wanted. And they listened and they really listened. So it's a fascinating run of three films for me. I think Star Trek Three is a fantastic space movie. Lots of fun. I can only imagine that most hardcore Star Trek fans really dig it. And, and if you don't, then forgive me. I, I don't live and breathe this stuff like you do. It is the directorial debut of uh, Spock himself, Leonard Nimoy. I mean, you might know this. I don't. Um, I'm guessing he might have had a stipulation of, yeah, I'll come back, but um, I want to direct it. And they were like, fine, who cares? Well, and that's that's how number five happened is because everybody wanted to turn in the shoot after that. Captain Kirk is climbing a mountain. Why is he climbing a mountain? Captain Kirk is climbing a mountain. Why? My, my point, though, was that he did such a great job with three. They let him do four. Four was a smash hit. Then he directed Three Men and a Baby, which was literally the biggest hit of 1987. I think what you see from him, and one of the reasons that it wasn't just a good thing to get him to come back to offer him the chair, I think it's because he knew the other the rest of the cast so well. And unlike Shatner, I think Nimoy had real affection for the other performers. So I think a lot of this servicing of other performers, of letting Sulu have his moment, of letting Uhura have her moment, of it's because Nimoy knows what that felt like and he knows what they were feeling and he'd had those conversations with him. So I think there's some sense on his part of wanting to make that platform a great platform for these other actors and not just for Shatner and himself. So I think there's a generosity of spirit that speaks well of Nimoy there. Uh, different Savick, no, no longer Kirstie Alley. Yeah, who I think by that point was like, nah, I don't really want to go put the ears on and be like, Ninth build on that list again. Speaking of Kirstie Alley not appearing in your film, it's time for a piece of garbage called Conan the Destroyer. Grace Jones, Wilk Chamberlain, Mako, Sarah Douglas, and Arnold Schwarzenegger as Conan the Destroyer. The all-new adventures of the most powerful legend of them all. This film hurts me as if Ice Pirates was the sequel to Star Wars. This is painful to me. I hate this movie like I hate few other films. I, one thing I'll notice about Richard Fleischer, who we recently talked about for Amityville 3D, this dude shoots actors like he's mad at them. He shoots so many characters cringing, grimacing, squealing, shooting them from below so you get, like, quick crotch shots. And everything in this movie looks like it was made of balsa wood, paper mache, and sweat. This is the kind of film 
where your entire movie is about a quest to face a monster, and when you finally get oh. to the monster, <laughs> it's a shitty dude in a suit. And it would be bad enough if it was just a shitty dude in a suit. They cast Andre the Giant, who we have now learned, thanks to The Princess Bride and things about Andre, was a enormously charismatic and charming man. And they put him in a suit that is utterly immobile, has no facial expression. It looks unfinished. It, and this is the kind of movie where it feels like they cut the budget, let's say, in half. That's me being charitable. That's they, generous, yeah. They cut the budget in half and gave it to a, a, a carpetbagger like Richard Fleischer. And then the night before the shoot was about to begin, they cut another third out of that budget. That's what it feels like. Blash around in the mud. It's horrible, man. Something that you probably knew, but a friend on Twitter informed me is that uh, this film is at least partially a Marvel movie because the Grace Jones character is a Marvel character. She was not a a Robert E. Howard creation at all. Yeah, and Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway get credit for the story for this thing. That is damning them by association. They didn't write the story for this movie. The actual screenplay was by Stanley Mann, who's had a busy year because we just covered his Firestarter. It's an excruciating movie, and it's full of those awful kind of winky-winky nods to the first film. Conan punches a camel this time, because remember, he punched a horse in the first one. (laughs) I just want your money. I know you like the first one. I have no idea why you like the first one. I'm mad that I have to make another one. Fuck you, give me your money, and if I have to, I'll take it from you. It's gross. Why is Will Chamberlain in this movie? I don't understand. Oh, my God. In the first film, when when John Milius cast um, Jerry Lopez in the first film, it feels like they looked at that and they went, well, he cast a surfer in the first one. I don't know, cast a basketball player in the second one? They didn't even understand the choices. that were. They were just imitating them without even understanding them. I feel bad for poor Tracy Walter, who we love. Tracy Walter is a great character actor. He got cast here when David Lander got sick. And David Lander, who we know is Squiggy from uh, Laverne and Shirley, and as a character actor, he's done a thousand voices for things. And Tracy Walter got dumped in at the last minute. And so he's playing this character that... I get the feeling he didn't know what he was doing when they flew him to the set. Like, they just threw him into it. Everybody feels like they were cast to replace somebody else who just left the set and they weren't given the script. Like, there's moments where Grace Jones is clearly just riffing as a warrior, waiting for someone to say cut. And I I think it's safe to say I'm not a Fleischer fan. I think I have seen enough of his work now to find the few films I don't dislike the exception rather than the rule. Well, Drew, then let me ask you this. If you're not a fan of Richard Fleischer, how do you feel about Bob Clark? I'm real up and down on him. I have my moments like A Christmas Story where I think, man, Bob Clark can do no wrong. And then, and then I see Rhinestone. What is this? As big an accident as anybody made in the 80s. Okay, so we're we're in the post-urban cowboy sort of uh, new shit kicker, chic. I'm guessing that the bar that is in this movie, that there must have been some real world equivalent where there was a country western bar in New York City. 
And somebody must have had a conversation with somebody else about authenticity. How authentic can a New York cowboy ever be? That's not a terrible question to ask. But when the way you externalize that question involves Dolly Parton and Sylvester Stallone, it is unconscionable that you asked it. It's basically My Fair Lady. It's based on a song. All right. Now, Drew, we've already covered what uh, Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia. I think we covered Harper Valley PTA. No, did we? When movies are based on country western songs, Convoy, that's another one. Yeah. They suck. This is unwatchable. I would rather watch a million YouTube videos of people removing Band-Aids. It feels like Stallone saw Best Little Whorehouse in Texas and got super jealous and went, I want to do a movie with her. The only thing that this movie has going for it on any level is that Dolly Parton remains one of the most charming people I've ever seen on film. First of all, I find the premise of this movie gross. Even the poster alludes to this. That is where I really end up having a, a major problem because the premise is Ron Liebman is the sleazy bar owner bets Dolly Parton, who is his headline singer and very, very talented and popular there on the stage. So I don't know why he needs another singer. He bets her she can't turn an average schmo into a country western singer. So her job is that she has to turn Stallone the cab, New York cab driver, into a country singer. If she wins, the dickhead will tear up her contract. If she loses, she has to fuck him. And they make such a big deal out of what he's going to do and how she has zero choice in it. As soon as she loses the bet, it does not matter what she wants. She's having sex with it. It's the rapiest, most grotesque language. And then to make a joke out of it on the poster, she's putting everything on the line. And we do mean everything. All right. Don't circle it in red and keep rubbing our noses in it when your film is already disgusting. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And, and it, there's bits in this where it's like Stallone and Parton are supposed to be doing like screwball banter. She's throwing him lines. There are great lines, but she's throwing him lines and he's throwing meatballs back at her. For this movie, Stallone got $5 million. To do this movie, he passed on Beverly Hills Cop and some say Romancing the Stone. I know that the Beverly Hills Cop thing, he developed that script and was on it for a while. It's like the terms of endearment thing. You really have to question someone's judgment when they have these things sitting on a table in front of them. Now, look, Beverly Hills Cop would not have been the same film if he'd made it. It would have been a more serious, more Cobra-esque action thing. It was not a comedy, but at least it made sense to Sylvester Stallone as an actor. Like, I can see why he would make that post-Nighthawks. I cannot fathom what happened here aside from the money and the writer, the original writer, of this Phil Alden Robinson, who great writer, smart writer, funny writer. You wonder what he and Bob Clark, you wonder what their version removed from the movie star ego of Sylvester Stallone might have been on the page. There's literally no way to know. What's weird is reading up on the history of this movie, you would almost think that, okay, say you're Phil Alden Robinson and you got this assignment, you're going to write this silly screenplay based on a, a, a country western smash hit song. All right, that's not a crime. Sounds dumb to me, but okay. Oh, guess who wants to be in our movie? Sylvester Stallone. You would think that would be a screenwriter's biggest dream. No, because what happens is Stallone takes your screenplay, takes you out of the loop entirely, and rewrites it however he wants. Phil Alden Robinson actually wrote two film critics explaining that none of his screenplay is in the final product. One of the lowest points 
out of the entire podcast so far was sitting through Drinkenstein. Women like you cause he's strange. I felt bad for him. To quote Mr. T, I pitied the fool. It is tough to take. All right, uh, let's move on. From an epic migraine to a film that I don't know if Dolly Parton ever saw, but she should because it's fantastic. It's time to discuss Sergio Leone's epic Once Upon a Time in America. I'm not interested in your friends in high places, and I don't trust politicians. No, if we listen to you, we'd still be rolling drunks for a living. Are you broke? You'll carry that stink of the streets with you the rest of your life. I like the stink of the streets. It makes me feel good. I like the smell it. It opens up my lungs. Arnon Milshan presents a Sergio Leone film starring Robert De Niro, Once Upon a Time in America. I tried to watch this film when it originally came out on home video, so that would have been 85 That was the theatrical release version, deeply trimmed down, 139-minute movie. If you are ever to watch this movie, do not let it be that cut. That 139-minute movie isn't a movie. I don't know what it is, and it didn't work, and I really didn't get it at 15. I watched it, and I was baffled by it, and I, at that point, had a really hard time connecting that to the Sergio Leone who had made the westerns that I grew up on. I had seen all of his western movies because those were the movies my dad watched incessantly. Leone was absolutely part of my the fabric of my early film knowledge. So I knew his work, but that film just I could not get it. And when it finally came out years later, restored, and there were two or three different attempts to restore this thing, and they finally got a version that runs four hours and nine minutes, four hours and 11 minutes, something like that. That is the the version that you should track down if you're going to watch any of them. There's some unfinished material in it, but finally sitting down and watching that start to finish, you realize, oh, you can't judge any other version of the movie because it's not fair. You have to see the longer version and you have to see it edited in the order that he meant for it to work or it's just not a film if you're a fan of films like The Godfather and Miller's Crossing and Goodfellas, this is on that level. It is that good. Weirdly cast for a bunch of Jewish guys, but that's okay. I'm not complaining. We have uh, Robert De Niro as the, a young man who grows up on the uh, very mean streets of New York City. It, it jumps back and forth and back and forth from the 30s to the 40s to the 60s and uh, challenging film you have to really pay attention but you don't really get lost uh leone knows how to uh, tell a, a structured story a multi-tiered story i think the stuff with the kids is maybe better than the stuff with the movie stars i don't think it's a great film on the level of his very very best work in the sense that i don't think he ever quite nailed down his version, and I don't think he ever got to do the fine-tuning of it that might have made the difference. I also do think it's a little weird that he is telling the Jewish gangster experience, but with a largely Italian cast, and using a lot of the Italian iconography and a lot of the Catholic iconography. It's a little confused in places because I think his experience is leaning towards the Catholic experience and the Judaism to the me is is very surface in this movie. It's not Yentl, but having this be tangentially related to my culture is is uh, 
it's a refreshing. What I find interesting about Leone, and I, and I think this is true of his Westerns and it's true of this, is that unlike Coppola, who's making a movie that is him telling the story of Italian-American family using Italian-American crime as the framework for that, where he's telling his own experience in a heightened way, Leone's movies about America are all fantasies. They are all movies about America from somebody who doesn't live in America and has no real practical experience of America. It's interesting that you note that because the film is framed as such so that you're not entirely sure when all is said and done what you saw was real and which parts were not. He is making movies about the idea of America. They are not movies that reflect anything about real America. It's very different. It's not a crime drama from an American filmmaker about American crime. It's his romanticized fantasy version of what New York was like in the 30s, and it's beautiful, and it's all shot through this filter of movies. And in some ways, that's as American an idea as there is. For a movie that is so sprawling and huge, a lot of it feels very episodic. For example, Danny Aiello plays a corrupt police chief. And there's a fantastic sequence in which the the criminals pull off a, a really crazy trick to get what they want from the police chief. And I find myself halfway through this giant, long-ass movie thinking, why is that character only in that one whole sequence? He's never spoken of before or again. And it's the same with Joe Pesci. Joe Pesci is introduced as a major uh, adversary. And then you see him one more time later in the film, and that things just kind of vanish. Our good friend Burt Young shows up for a very memorable monologue early in that film. Let me tell you something. And I say early in the film, and it's probably an hour 45 in. We now need to start delineating between the two different types of Burt Young performance. The Burt Young where he's eating something and Burt Young where he's not eating something. And I much prefer the former to the latter. Because when Burt Young is eating, he does this business with his hands and he, he has to chew before he can say, get the fuck out of here. I know we always say that, you know, he looks like Winnie the Pooh was shaven and dunked in a honey jar. Oh! I know we always say he looks like a meatball that rolled around on the floor for a month. Oh! But And I say this with all sincerity now, I fucking love Burt Young. I love him in this and something else coming up this episode. He's in one scene in this movie and he's great. Oh, yeah. And in that one scene, it's hard to tell where the plate of meatballs and spaghetti ends and he begins, but it's fine. It's completely fine. He's great, and I agree with you. Both movies he shows up in this month are better for him being in them. James Woods, not all that good. Is that crazy? The character Max is so poorly defined opposite Noodles, who Noodles drives everything. Everything in this movie is his idea or he's the engine behind it. And even when Max makes something happen... We don't see it. It happens off camera. So the character never registers. I'm, I'm thinking mainly of like James Woods has these moments, obviously, where he's uh, got this electric anger. And there's a scene where all the guys have reunited and there's tension in the room. And his girlfriend, as played rather excellently by Tuesday Weld, uh, starts to interject. And he just flips out and says, shut up, shut up, shut up. And he does it like seven times. And I'm like, like, this is the great performance. No, he, he's like a child. I think that looking back over James Woods' career, I'm just starting to realize that good actor, not a great actor, just really good at playing a sleazebag because that's what he is. This is De Niro's film. De Niro is everything in this movie. In many ways, he's a noble villain, except he's a horrible rapist. And I get, you know, the the, the point of 
this is a fractured man who doesn't know how to show affection, who doesn't know how to be tender, who just takes what he wants like a monster. And I think an American filmmaker would probably not have done it that way. I, I would agree. I, and I think it's it's a movie without anybody to hold on to in the end because these are terrible people who were ruined by the life they are leading. So, yeah, he doesn't really give you the out that The Godfather or a lot of gangster films did where they wanted to give you one person you could hang on to as the moral anchor in this world. And I don't think he necessarily believed that you had a moral anchor in a world like this. I think the score for this film is one of my very favorite Morricone scores. And there are themes in this. The, the main theme that Zamfir, uh, George Zamfir plays on the, uh, the pan flute that runs through it, um, haunting piece of music. And I can't imagine these images without that score. He painted these incredible things to give Morricone an excuse to write this music. My question to you, Drew, before we move on is, do you think that, Given his complete free reign, he would have would it have been that this version or or would he have said or would he have said, no, no, I always meant to make a two and a half hour film and I wasn't done. I think his original plan was he had more in mind breaking this in half like a godfather and having two full films. And I think there's even more footage than we've seen. Like there's more stuff. There's a much, much longer assembly version. And I think he was trying to find something that worked within the confines of a theater and a theatrical running time. But like a lot of artists who were working in that late seventies end of the auteur era, I think they were brushing up against the constrictions of what an audience would sit still for. The version that we watched is probably the optimal version. Like I think it doesn't need to be longer. You get so much out of it. And I don't know that there's much more he had to say about America beyond this. It's time to move on. We have another epic, gigantic, important, impactful, socially relevant film to discuss. It's time for Bachelor Party. Rick Gasco is a man who lives to love. I'm getting married. Yeah, right. Yeah, let's have a bachelor party with chicks and guns and fire trucks and hookers and... His bride, Debbie... It's you! ...was raised in a different world. Rick, we don't have a dog. Oh, that's too bad. That's a waste of some good fat. Bachelor Party, starring Tom Hanks, a man's tradition every woman should know about. Hey, it's dark in here. Scott, you know, we have um, the thing that I, I use. It's a movie service that I put together called Plex, where I have my movies that I can watch. And my kids can use it at their house, and I can see what my kids are watching. So I'm at home one night and Plex lights up and I look over and I see what it is and Bachelor Party is playing at the other house. So I make a phone call real quick and it turns out their mom had put Bachelor Party on because she likes Tom Hanks and had never seen it. I quickly put a stop to that screening because this movie still really deserves its R rating and revisiting it. My kids won't be seeing Bachelor Party for a long time long time i saw this when i was 12 
I agree with you about not letting your boys watch, <laughs> but I'm just saying. I saw this when I was 12. And here's how it happened. You know, obviously, what radio station giveaway tickets are. So my mom comes home from work, and she's got these two purple tickets. They both say, good for two admissions to bachelor party. Now, we were already huge Tom Hanks fans, thanks mainly to Splash and Bosom Buddies. If she had thought about it or talked to a friend, she might have just buried those tickets in her pocketbook and never brought it up again. But being an awesome person who knew her son would be thrilled to see the new Tom Hanks movie four days early, broke out these two tickets at dinner and said, these are for Wednesday night. You would have thought that we had won a million dollars. Wednesday night rolls around. We go to the theater. My sister's like, we're going to sit four, 10, 12, whatever rows up. I don't know why it was only about half full. And my sister and I were about eight rows back and my parents were about 12 rows behind us. So the movie ends. It's got all the donkey stuff, which I kind of understood, but not really. And we did not discuss the movie all the way home. Uh, Lisa, you got homework for tomorrow? Yeah, I got homework. Like, we did not talk about (laughs) Bachelor Party for about a week. Um, There is some stuff in this movie that is still funny. My my whole thing about like what what you call like sex crime comedies or like cringers or stuff that is not aged well, it was wrong to introduce bestiality in a raucous sex comedy. It was raunchy in 1984. I don't have a problem with a movie called Bachelor Party being crazy and raunchy and wild because the entire premise is we're going to throw our friend the craziest, raunchiest, wildest bachelor party there is. Even in the realm of R-rated or whatever, I could see someone going, you know what, jokes about a woman who may or may not have literal sex with a donkey, not really down. My biggest issue with this film is that it's one of those 80s comedies that never really sets a reality. You don't know how real reality is. So can you kill somebody? Can you make that the joke? Can you hurt somebody? When, when the villain starts shooting darts at them, like yeah, literal- can you hospitalize somebody? Is that funny? Is it Bugs Bunny damage that you're doing to people? Is it I'm actually breaking their bones and they're going to have to mend? So I need to know what that reality is to laugh because slapstick humor is fine with me. Big crazy slapstick is fine. And this movie sets up a really great piece of crap in Robert Prescott as Cole. I will give Robert Prescott credit for this. Like William Zabka, who we talked about in The Karate Kid, although we probably didn't talk about him enough because Zabka is great in The Karate Kid. Robert Prescott was born to play preppy shitheads. The two performances that I like in this movie are Robert Prescott as the waspy dick, who we'll get to again in Real Genius, and Tom Hanks' potential future father-in-law, as played by George Grizzard. There's just a bit where he starts to rattle off everything about Hanks that he hates, and, <laughs> and they cut away to it, and then they cut back, and he keeps going, and I'm like, this actor knows exactly the snob, the Ted Knight role that he's playing, and he's not in it much, but he's very funny. There's things, things in this movie that I think have aged very poorly and made me angry. There's a trans panic joke that's really ugly. Yeah, oh, God, it's, it's as bad as the Ace Ventura one. Uh, and then the other one is that our heroines, we have a group of women in the movie leaving a bachelorette party or a, baby, a wedding shower. They're chased around a hotel room in their underwear by a bunch of the Asian businessmen. And the, the ultimate punchline to that sequence <laughs> is super ugly. I don't I don't even want to get into the sexual politics or what they're trying to say about the the man-hating character. There's one man-hating character. Oh, it's so it's very ugly. So those are two jokes. But yet there's a really infantile joke about the mother of the bride inadvertently jerking a man's dick off that made me laugh still. 
I'm just a child. I don't know There's why. There's a sound effect involving Nick that's still funny. When Nick the Dick puts his penis and he drops it onto the bun and we hear a thump. And that contrasted with Tom Hanks, like, squinting. It's funny. It's, like, wrong, but it's funny. And they get a lot of mileage out of the eternally awesome, everybody should build an altar to her, Wendy Jo Sperber, who I love so dearly and who was a gift to a comedy director. She would show up and whatever you gave her, she would plus it. She would make it better. She would give you something back that was workable and funny. And the comedy guys who knew who she was, the the filmmakers who like Zemeckis and Gale, the guys who got it, they got it. I'm really surprised she wasn't a bigger comic force while she was alive because I think she was always on. There is no bad performance from her. She's saddled with kind of the, a, a crappy character in that she's like supposed to be a fastidious doctor who slowly loosens up over the night. And there's a, like a very clunky scene at a Chippendales type dance where very few of the women are given anything to do. But when they let Wendy Jo Sperber cut loose and dance a little, that's when the movie, like that's what the movie needed to be the whole time. She can't play a false note. She's so good that even giving crap like this, she's really funny in places arguably biggest laugh in the movie i saw this in theaters when she beats the shit out of her husband at the end and she says no hookers you said there'd be no hookers stanley that might be the biggest laugh in the whole movie uh god she she died many years ago god bless wendy joe sperber uh now two points one i was in love with this character and tom hanks in general so now but i'm watching this movie and i'm thinking isn't this kind of the archetype that drew is talking about Everyone's supposed to like him because he walks in with his hat backwards and he talks confident. I think in this movie, it's so broad, he kind of nails it. We saw like the asshole end of the universe with Dana Olson's portrayal of this character in Making the Grade last month. What Hanks has going for him is that Hanks has that Bugs Bunny thing where there is a likability that excuses the crazy bad behavior. There is something about him that lets you know I'm not going to do anything really bad. Whatever we do here is going to be fine and fun, and it's just silly, and I'm just silly. And so he carries that. You have a real problem when the guys around him are way less interesting than him, and you have Adrian Zemed, and you have just guys who are not, they're not funny. And, and I think the key to the, uh, another key to the likability of Hanks is that he, even though the movie gets super raunchy, he never does. The scenes between him and Tony Katane, he's actually very sweet. Uh, Drew, did you know that this movie almost starred Paul Reiser and Kelly McGillis? I can't imagine it working without Hanks. I think he is the reason that we even are still talking about the movie. So, Drew, you know what? We, we've been dealing in, like, blockbuster and raucous sex comedy territory. Let's take an art house break and discuss the final Dutch film from Paul Verhoeven. It's The Fourth Man. When you have been warned, you must listen In my opinion, this might be the most Paul Verhoeven, Paul Verhoeven movie. No, Flesh and Blood is more Verhoeven than this is Verhoeven. I don't know, man. I think all the religious stuff is him all over. I think this is the warm up for a lot of what he was going to because 
Look, he'd already been trading the outrageous. If you look at Turkish Delight or you look at Soldier of Orange, he was not afraid of very strong imagery or very shocking imagery. Or, I think Verhoeven is so fascinated by the place where the sacred and the profane meet. The Fourth Man feels like a dry run for basic instinct. It feels like it's got all these sort of cheeky, provocative... I'm going to poke you in the eye and see what you do nature of like RoboCop. All of that is in there. It's a simple film noir about uh, your own crab, a crab, your own crab uh, as an alcoholic novelist who frequently has visions of death and scary things and murder. And he goes to a convention and he hooks up with a beautiful woman who may or may not be a killer. And the hookup with her is more about his interest in the guy she's with because he is clearly working on a lot of things in his own life. He is very aggressively, almost predatorially gay when he's gay. But you get the sense that he also is conveniently hetero for business or for publication or for other things. His character is interesting as the main character in the film because from the very beginning, he is not necessarily presented as somebody whose perspective we can trust. We get the impression that he's the dangerous one. We're waiting for that shoe to drop he meets a woman, and then it slowly shifts where she may be the dangerous one. And of course, the truth is, both of them and then a third man are the dangerous ones. The title, of course, refers to the theory that comes late in the film that she's already killed men before, which may or may not be true. I mean, the film opens with him getting out of bed and full frontal nudity from him repeatedly for about the first four minutes of the film. They just keep... Right in your face. Just to let you know, this is not Hollywood. This is not how Hollywood normally works. This is not what you're normally going to see. It puts you off balance because he immediately puts the forbidden right out in front. And we know how films work. We know what films do and don't do. We know what they will and won't show. And I think part of what Verhoeven does really beautifully in The Fourth Man is throws you off balance from the very beginning. So you have no idea what he's capable of. This is kind of like what Lawrence Kasdan was doing with Body Heat and what Bob Rafelson was doing with Postman Always Rings Twice. This is simply Paul Verhoeven paying homage to the film noir motif that he loves, only he doesn't work in the Hollywood form. He will be explicit. He will be unpredictable. And yeah, it's a very interesting film. Uh, there are many Verhoeven films I like a hell of a lot more, but you can totally see how this was a stepping stone to uh, more interesting and much more expensive things. It is surprisingly hard to get hold of, too. There is a box set that came out a few years ago where it's this and Turkish Delight. And uh, I don't think it's Spetas, but it's something else uh, from that era. And it's weird to me how a film that is as pivotal for a major filmmaker, and I do think Verhoeven is a major filmmaker, a major voice. It's weird how even though it's only 30 years ago, even their early work can get very, very hard to find and fall out of commercial availability. And I think there's something wrong with that. I agree. I think that movies should be free to roam the wild and uh, mate on the felt. <laughs> <laughs> Drew, let us move on to a cult item, a film beloved by few, but deeply beloved by those few. Walter Hill's Streets of Fire. You are about to enter a world where people are moved by the music of a woman of beauty. Where justice is in the hands of one man of courage. Where the battle between good and evil is fought in streets of fire. From now on, it's for real. From the creators of 48 Hours. 
Streets of Fire. Rated PG. Starts Friday, June 1st at select theaters. It is about a, a rock star played by Diane Lane, who has been a rock star in other films we've covered. She is kidnapped by Willem Dafoe, who roams around in uh, shiny leather overalls. Then our hero, Michael Paré, has to go get her. And then there is a fight. And that is literally the entire movie. I, I like the look of it. I don't like a lot of the music. I love the cast. And I love the energy that it seems to have for a plot that is almost non-existent. 48 Hours which I love. So the rushes are coming in on 48 hours and people are starting to talk about it. And they're talking about Eddie Murphy and what a star he's going to be. And Walter Hill is finally getting that moment where he is considered the major commercial force that Spielberg or Lucas or those guys are. And he and Larry Gross hatched this idea for this thing that had sort of been bubbling around in Walter Hill, this pulp character that he wanted to create a whole series of movies around it's the man with no name. It's the stranger. It's the guy who rolls into town and can do anything and handle anything. And we're going to see a lot of filmmakers over the next few years here try their shot at pulling this off, creating their own pulp character who can then kickstart a pulp series and carry all these adventures. And one of the things that is damnably hard about this, and I think it's one of the reasons Indiana Jones deserves our awe and respect, it is so hard to create something that has the simplicity of pulp and the complexity of modern entertainment that works on both levels and satisfies. And part of the problem here is Perret's a dud. Perret is not a terribly interesting lead. And Tom Cody, as written, doesn't give Perret anything to hold on to. So we either have to bond to him as a performer like we do with Harrison Ford, or that character needs to have more meat on it to make us want to see something else. It's not enough that he's just, I can punch people. Even a Snake Plissken who's simplistic, even beyond having the awesome Kurt Russell, there's stuff on the page that is interesting about Snake Plissken. Yeah, you're right. It's the constant filling in of the details around him. I heard you were dead. Things like that that indicate there's a larger life to Snake Plissken or a history. Tom Cody needs more of that. You know, it's what Buckaroo Banzai tried to do, create that sense of a history before they ever got to this adventure. They need more of it to sell it. This, to me, is where Walter Hill thought, I'm kind of being pigeonholed. I want to do something a bit different. Streets of Fire, still an action movie, but definitely billed as a rock and roll fable in an alternate reality. Then after this, he does Brewster's Millions, a straight comedy. And after that, he does Crossroads, which we'll get to. And then after that, nothing but action films. Like, he was sampling around other genres in the 80s. And I can see why people love Streets of Fire like you and I love Popeye or Flash Gordon. I think it depends on what your fetishes are, though. I think you've got to have the same fetishes as Walter Hill. Motorcycles, the 50s, neon. Like, it's very particular. This is not a broad sort of everybody has this same set of references or loves. And when you make a fetish movie, when you steer into your own fetishes like this, you risk isolating the audience and you're asking, you're basically rolling the dice and gambling that they're going to love the same shit you love and that they're going to love it the same way you do. Ties into a major problem that I have with the movie, which is the music. Imagine you're watching like Little Shop of Horrors, hey, which also features uh, Rick Moranis. Now, imagine you're into every aspect of the movie, but you just hate all the songs. Every 10 or 12 minutes, you have to sit there and drum your fingers and wait for the songs to end because you're not trying to not like them. You just don't. 
That's how I feel about the musical sequences in this movie. I'm fine with this very paper-thin adventure where it's point A to point B, but boy, the musical numbers in this, it's like if you don't love the very specific music that Walter Hill's down with, you know, you're going to be bored. My first question is, are you a Meatloaf fan? Because the two big numbers, the two big songs that to me define the sound of Streets of Fire, it's not the, the hit, the MTV song, the I Can Dream About You. It's the song She Does. And those are both Jim Steinman Meatloaf sounding specials. Like, oh, I like Meatloaf, but I don't like these songs at all. And I think this movie spends too much time on it. And he uses the musical numbers as kind of a crutch. What I do like is how Paré kind of builds this fun piecemeal collection of side characters. They're not given a whole lot to do, but I'm a huge fan of that whole long sequence of Rick Moranis as Diane Lane's ostensible boyfriend slash manager who needs her back. Does he love her or does he just need her back for business reasons? But he's funny, obnoxious, so that's fine. Then there's Amy Madigan as like a homeless drifter. She's the best thing in the movie by far. She definitely gets the, the flat comic book tone. She knows what she's doing. E.G. Daly pops up to join the team for a little while. I don't know why. I think Bill Paxton hits the right tone. I think Bill Paxton knows what movie Walter Hill was making, and I think he's in it. Very happy to see Deborah Von Valkenberg. Fans will recognize from The Warriors, another Walter Hill film. That's the movie that visually this feels like the most out of his career is The Warriors. I hate Walter Hill's reconsideration of The Warriors that he did where he added all that weird comic booky stuff. He added the wipes. Yeah. There's wipes in this that remind me of that. And it's his take on comic book. Walter Hill didn't read the same comic books I did. And he doesn't have the same relationship with them I do. He's older, and his take on comics is real different. He has a different attitude on what a comic book is or what it feels like. So I don't even know that he and I share the same point of reference for comic books for his version of that language to work for me. I will say two good things. I think Willem Dafoe and Diane Lane are both perfectly cast for the visual movie that he's making. Dafoe at this point, how did he never play the Joker? Because good God, he is the Joker in this film. He is spooky and weird and kind of beautiful and fascinating. Like Willem Dafoe is visually perfect for this. And Diane Lane looks like she kept all of her wardrobe from, ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains, and also remembered all of her rock star attitude from that film. Visually, they both work really well. And it's weird that the whole thing is as stage-bound as it is. For an action movie that's supposed to have as much outside and as much sort of street fighting, you can tell that it was shot on eight blocks of the Universal backlot with tarps over them. So it kind of restricts his world in a way that I think works against what he's trying to build. And you can't build a giant action scene when your cars don't have room to back up or, or drive or when your motorcycles can only go 50 feet before they have to turn right or left or they'll crash into something. It's really hard to stage action. But one thing that I can say about our next film is that, boy, it really breaks out of the studio, uses the <laughs> landscape of America, and deals, you know, really digs into what the beautiful cars and automobiles made in America can do. Ladies and gentlemen, stand up. It is time for the classic Cannonball Run 2. Ladies and gentlemen, the popcorn's in the lobby, and the nuts are on the screen. You wanted it, you got it! <laughs> Cannonball Run 2. 
And this time, there's no limit. At last comes the motion picture from the greatest book of traffic citations ever written. Cannonball Run 2. The film has, I believe, become a punchline on a good place. As a medium place movie. If there was just the medium place, there's no way Cannonball Run 2 would be there. No, it's not good enough to be in the medium place. The medium place would be like Jaws 2. I'd be more likely that I'd see The Bachelor Party in the medium place than Cannonball Run 2. It feels like a bunch of actors were in between guest shots on um, The Love Boat and Fantasy Island and shot this in between that. It's the Grown Ups 2 of Hal Needham movies. It is an excuse for these people to make another paycheck. I will say that I finally feel like I got that terms of endearment itch out of my system, having seen Burt Reynolds and Shirley MacLaine and the magic that occurs between them and every scene they share in this film. It's not that we have a problem with Cannibal Run 2 or potentially praising it. It's does you have to have such a lack of effort on the screen? That's what makes disdain, not just that you made a sequel. It's that you, you nobody tried. Well, and as a Golden Harvest production, it's one of those early examples of what international financing would do where they had to have certain elements in the movie in order to sell it around the world. And so you have Jackie Chan, who hadn't broken in America yet but who gets a crazy amount of screen time considering that he was not a movie star here yet. And I remember at the time being baffled by it, not realizing that Jackie Chan was at that point probably one of the biggest names in the film internationally. In some ways, it it seems the Cannonball Run 1 and 2 were basically just infomercials for Jackie Chan, but we didn't know it. One thing that will always strike into the nostalgia well for me is... I am a huge fan. I don't know why it has to be tied into something I saw as a kid. But when you used to see these trailers and it would just rattle off all the names. Burt Reynolds, Dom DeLuise, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Jamie Farr, Mary Lou Henner, Kelly Savalas, Shirley MacLaine, Susan Anton, Catherine Bach, Foster Brooks, Sid Caesar, Jackie Chan, Tim Conway, Tony Danza. It goes so far. Jack Elam, Don Knotts, Richard Keel, Ricardo Montalban, Jim Neighbors, Molly Pecan, Charles Nelson Riley, Alex Rocco, Henry Silva, Joe Theismann, Mel Tillis, Fred Dreyer, Dave Pagoda, Artie Johnson, and Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra. You just do just that and put that jangly guitar behind it. It like gives me goosebumps. I don't know why. I wish the car stuff was better because I am ostensibly a Hal Needham fan in the sense that I like car stunts. I like the history of stunts in Hollywood. And I think Hal Needham directed a couple of movies where he got it right. And I think Hooper is the best of those. It's shocking to me that the car stuff, the stunt stuff in this which should be the bread and butter of the movie and where the big payoffs can happen and where you can really nail some gags down. That's the most indifferent stuff. When you don't even do the thing you do well, I'm not asking that you do somebody else's thing well. Do your thing well. And as a Hal Needham movie, this is a mediocre piece of garbage. Doug McClure, Doug Taylor, Sean Weatherly, Frank Welker, 
That is a Battle of the Network Stars tug of war that I would love to see. Let's move on to the next film. Could not be a more radical left turn from Cannonball Run 2. Uh, we go from Hal Needham not giving a shit to a truly great filmmaker near the end of his career rallying for a roar of anger and pain. Let's talk about John Huston's Under the Volcano. Somewhere between choice and fate, guilt and fear. You, we were wrong, not Jeffrey. Love and betrayal. I wanted you back so badly. Is a place where few of us dare to go. What do you want? My England man. I give you a beautiful girl. A place that lies within us all. Hell is my natural habitat. Under the Volcano, based on Malcolm Lowry's classic novel. Albert Finney, he is a British consul officer who is past his point of usefulness. He is an alcoholic. Violently alcoholic. Yeah, and in, <laughs> it, it, this takes place 1938 in Mexico on the Day of the Dead. I don't mean to minimize the film or dismiss it, but it felt very much to me like a period piece leaving Las Vegas. The book took years and years to write. For Malcolm Lowry, who was one of these guys who lived what he wrote and who actually was this functionally alcoholic, to express those feelings and ideas and that twilight world that a truly degenerate alcoholic lives in. There are times where I'll eat like a spicy burrito and I'm thinking, I'll be dead in a week. What happened to me? And yet these people drink and do hard drugs for 35, 40 years and live to write novels. Well, and this is a guy who he took that posting in Mexico. And as a consul, you've got to imagine that he didn't have a lot of oversight. There wasn't a lot of people like leaning on him. And it's not a high pressure gig. It's not like he had to produce anything or. I don't even know what his job is. He works. It's in a diplomacy job. It's essentially you're there because there are some business interests and your job is to smooth them along and to be the guy that's there to shake hands. And especially that spot, that part of Mexico, that time, you're not talking about a guy who the whole weight of the empire was leaning on. For an alcoholic, that's a perfect position. You can just drink yourself to death slowly. And the movie is all one long day, as the book is. And if you're familiar with the novel, it is a very spot-on event-for-event adaptation for the most part. Yet somehow, it doesn't feel like Houston's just running down a checklist. Like, he makes the right choices. He manages to externalize enough of it because the, the book switches perspectives. Every chapter is told by somebody else, and, and so you're getting all these characters' perspectives. The film sticks with Finney for the most part. What is... Compelling to me about Finney's work in this movie is we've seen a lot of drunk performances on film, and drunk is hard to get right. And our great film drunks are not the ones where it's about how much behavior can you put on the top of it. It's the guys who show you the struggle to maintain dignity even while crippled by the alcohol. He's aware of that he should be ashamed of himself. Oh, yeah. He drinks the clarity at times. Like, there's moments where he drinks just enough that he snaps into focus again. And then he can't stay there. It's about that constant slide off of that point of focus where he's trying to hold on to that person that probably was a great husband to Jacqueline Bissett at one point and probably was a dynamic speaker at one point and probably was a really compelling guy but hasn't been in so long. John Houston 
was not making this movie from a position of, hey, I wonder what it's like to be a functional alcoholic. I find it compelling and haunting and clear-eyed to be able to make a film like this about a character like this and still be who you are and still be working the way he was working. It's just fascinating stuff. And we've seen a lot of directors who, towards the end of their careers, we were covering those movies, and they're kind of dispiriting because the system just didn't have a place for these guys anymore, and these guys didn't have the energy anymore, and you just felt like they were defeated. Houston didn't feel defeated at the end. And the the last few films that we're going to cover of his, you see, man, this old lion still has all of his claws and all of his teeth and can still do it when he wants to. And by it, he means move on to the next film, which is a very somber and dark and contemplative rumination on World War II. Catch Val Kilmer in this undercover comedy where East meets West. We fell down the Mount Gordon listen. What the hell did you say to him? Nothing. I just told him I put his name on the Montgomery Ward mailing list. Hillary. Now that's an unusual name. It's a German name. It means she whose bosoms defy gravity. It seems that you have become, how do you say, indispensable? Indispensable? I'm not the first guy who fell in love with a girl he met in a restaurant who then turned out to be the daughter of a kidnapped scientist, only to lose her to a childhood lover who she'd last seen on a deserted island and who turned out 15 years later to be the leader of the French underground. I know it. It all sounds like some bad movie. When the creators of Airplane and the Naked Gun set out to make a spy spoof, the laughs fall hard on the East German high command in Top Secret. There are two people in the world, those who love Top Secret and those who haven't seen it. I was going to say those who love Top Secret and those who are wrong, but I think we're saying the same thing. This is the follow-up from the gentleman who wrote and directed Airplane and passed on Airplane 2. How does this compare to Airplane? Before we move on to the individual merits of the film, how does this compare? I'm about to step in it. Um, I like this more than Airplane. I'm a bigger fan of Top Secret. I have more fondness for Top Secret. And if you asked me to put one or the other on, I'd put on Top Secret. Right now, if you said which one of those would you like to put on, I would put on Top Secret because I've probably seen it less frequently. However, in a perfect world, I put it, you remember those old things called records and they had two sides? Airplane would be on side A and Top Secret would be on side B. Police Squad would be what I'd watch while I was flipping the record over. But for a long time, man, Top Secret was the redheaded stepchild in their career. And unfairly. Val Kilmer plays a rock star enlisted to act as a spy. And it's all just a whole bunch of freaking crazy nonsense that is a framework on which to hang dozens and dozens of broad puns, sight gags, non sequiturs, nonsense, brilliant nonsense. The very visual sensibilities of filmmaking are made fun of in this movie. I know that not every film fan loves Mystery Science Theater 3000, and I get why. I know there's a lot of people that feel like it's entitled people to talk during movies or they have their grudges, against, whatever. What I love about Mystery Science Theater is not the idea that you're making fun of a bad movie. It's that you take this movie that doesn't work for whatever reason, and then you add these other ingredients, the robots and Joel, and they're watching the movie, and they interact with it, and it somehow becomes this other piece of art. My favorite moments on Misty are when they create their own characters and their own dialogue and their own running story, and over the course of a Misty movie, 
their story begins to play out and their characters start to play out. And it's almost like they've built another movie around it. That always entertains me. Top Secret feels like a mystery science theater movie where they took a spy movie and an Elvis movie and somehow cut them together and then built all these weird jokes to glue the two things together that shouldn't fit together at all. And somehow it makes sense and it's crazy and it works and the Blue Lagoon happens in the middle of it. It's bonkers, but that's what I love. There's never a moment in Top Secret that's not inventing and trying. Does that kind of date it? Like a Blue Lagoon reference, does that date a period piece? Except it's right next to a whole bunch of references to Elvis movies and Beach Boy songs. So it's like... The movie exists in this weird timeline where World War II and the Beach Boys somehow simultaneously exist, and that's part of what I love about it. I think growing up, I liked Airplane more because I kind of knew disaster movies. With Top Secret, I kind of got that Elvis made corny movies, never saw one of them. I got that World War II movies were like self-serious and stodgy, hadn't seen any of those. Oh, see, I grew up in a house with a dad who watched World War II movies and two parents from Memphis, so Elvis was God in my house. The beautiful thing for me is I could appreciate Top Secret as a live-action cartoon when I was 12 or 13 or 17. As a film guy, I'm like, oh, I get the visual joke here, and there's some stuff in this movie I don't get. What is the backward sequence? Is that a reference to something? What is that? I don't know, but it's a great joke and beautifully shot. And can you imagine the day they spent shooting that with Peter Cushing? I love the joke of the phone in the foreground. So, of course, it looks giant to us. But no, when the character enters the foreground, the phone is giant. I love those, oh, you've seen this shot a thousand times, so we're going to make a joke just based on that shot. The last time uh, Snyder and Bear were in town, we watched this with the kids. That's uh, Snyder and Bayer of MovieBS.com, the only movie podcast on the internet. And what was great was watching it with the kids who had zero reference to any of this. Val Kilmer is so appealing and so funny and such a great Bugs Bunny stand-in in this movie that immediately the kids fell for him. The crazy sense of humor started them laughing early, and Toshi got the giggles when the motorcycle pulls up to the hitching post and they hitch the motorcycle to the post and Toshi started giggling then. And then Alan started in the next scene and then just one detail after another got them going. And I forgot what it's like when you're discovering the rhythm of a Zucker Abrams Zucker movie and you just start getting sucker punched by laugh after laugh. By the end of it, they were exhausted. And I don't think I'd laughed that hard in years at watching someone watch something. Drew, the joke in this movie that I never got, and when I saw it as an adult, it killed me. The setup and the punchline for the anal intruder. The first time he does it, the way he leads into it verbally is genius. That guy sells that joke like nobody can sell that joke. so my kind of humor, which is you walk into a room full of people and say three cliches, and you go, listen up, everyone. I don't want to get everyone too excited. Something really amazing happened. And then their joke is, the fourth line is, a skunk just shit on my face. <laughs> you know, like... It is such great non-sec... And then the later callback is so terrific. Oh. Um, the movie is full of highbrow humor, lowbrow humor, really smart stuff, really dumb stuff in places. It's the perfect mix of all kinds of comedy together. And 
it bums me out that I don't think after that threefer, Airplane, Police Squad, the six episodes in this, I don't think we ever saw it again. Not really. Not like this. Those are, to me, the Zucker, Abrams, Zucker movies that perfectly encapsulate what they did beautifully. I think others work to some degree, but these are the jewels. While this film has small but funny parts by Omar Sharif and Peter Cushing, it lacks the absurd gravitas, I think, that Robert Stack and Leslie Nielsen. They had found a Leslie Nielsen equivalent to play Dr. Flamond. I think they would have had the same level of connect. You're right, because Leslie Nielsen's performance in Airplane is an all-time, oh my God, perfect lightning bolt moment. I think Val Kilmer is that in this, but he didn't have the guy to play off of. Here's the really fun part about charting the early stages. This is Val Kilmer's debut. And then he followed up immediately with Real Genius and then Top Gun and Willow. How was this guy not every kid's? How is this not your favorite movie star? This is your Kirk Douglas. I just did a Q&A at the Arrow Theater with uh, Ron Howard. We talked about Willow and about the casting and about casting Val Kilmer. And he told me some of the names for guys that almost played that part. Kilmer, obviously, he looks at that performance now and he's so happy they got him because they got him at a moment where he was young and hilarious and he can't imagine other people doing it. John Cusack came very close. John Cusack as Mad Mardigan? Yeah, came very close. And Tim Robbins was the other guy that came very close. Yeah. Blew my mind because I cannot imagine either one of them doing it. Yeah, you're right. Starting from this place and then going into Real Genius, even when he did more serious stuff, you got the sense that he had his tongue in his cheek and he was kind of making fun of everything around him. And I think there's an element of that that may have helped him and may have hurt him to some degree. So we move from a beloved, very broad comedy to a cult favorite dark comedy. And that's the odd part because growing up, I always thought that this was more or less a straight drama and having revisited it, I now believe that a dark comedy is the Pope of Greenwich village. Charlie Moran is a sharp guy. Just one decent break away from the big time. When we leave the city, I'm going to leave as an owner. Do you ever think we don't have to own the restaurant to move to the country, Charlie? You'll never get your own joint like this. Never. His cousin, Paulie, is a good kid whose schemes never seem to pay off. I'm out. I'm on the street. He fired you? No, he fired us. They nailed you on that big check. You know, we could do better. We could do a thousand percent better. Hey. There are a couple of dreamers who believe that together they can turn the life of chance into the chance of a lifetime. This is a film that I got obsessed with a few years after it came out, so probably late high school for me, so 17, 18, it would have been 87, 88. And when I got obsessed with it, I got obsessed with it. I agree 100%. It is a dark comedy. This is a goofball movie. It's of mice and men, right? I mean, it's like the old story of a streetwise hustler who is oddly loyal to a friend, brother, cousin, what have a you. A disaster. <laughs> Just a hilarious fucking wreck. Like, even after the opening sequence where Eric Roberts gets Mickey Rourke fired from his job at a restaurant after he clearly warns him 10 minutes earlier that he's going to get them fired. from Even from that moment on, if you're not thinking throughout this entire film, why are you loyal to this imbecile? As much as I enjoy this movie as a, a dual character piece and a little crime story and a dark comedy... I still cannot figure out. That's the movie, though. You're not ever supposed to figure it out, and you can't. 
It's how he's wired. He has to carry this guy. I think it's the code. I think it's just built into Mickey Rourke. And it's not right. He throws away the best thing in his life. He throws Daryl Hannah away. He is a child. We don't have to get inside of it as long as we understand that he's an immovable rock when it comes to the subject of his cousin. He's never going to sell Polly out ever, ever, ever. Even when he should, even when he has to, he can't. If you ever need proof that this is a dark comedy, wait till the very end and ask yourself, how does Mickey Rourke not stab Eric Roberts in the face for what he just did? And then you realize that it is a dark comedy. There's scenes in this movie where anybody else in that generation, everybody else that age would have gone big and loud and and gone as big as they could. And what I realized is 99% of what made Rourke so compelling is that he plays everything small until he doesn't. And so much of this, like when Daryl Hannah's smacking him and, and he's saying, hit me again. And you can see she's hitting him. And you watch how Rourke, every time he, he's rocked by Daryl Hannah, she basically almost takes him off his feet. And yet he goes smaller. He goes even more inside of himself and he gets everything more internal. And that's what's so compelling to me is just watching the way these guys make choices and the way that we build characters. And so watching Polly and Charlie, Eric Roberts and, and Mickey Rourke in this movie bounce off each other. Yeah, Mickey Rourke should strangle him. Now, If you ever want an example of why movie fans like us will always hold Eric Roberts, Mickey Rourke, Nicolas Cage, Sean Penn, a lot of these guys, no matter how old and silly and they're crappy, their movies might get, watch a movie like The Pope of Greenwich Village or Runaway Train and then get back to us and tell us that they're jokes, that they're talentless, that they're obsolete. They're not. We still have these snapshots like the Pope of Greenwich Village, and you tell me that those are not two of the most entertaining performances you've seen in a while. There's a performance in this movie that is in only two scenes. This actor comes in and in two scenes lays waste. Like, it is one of those performances that you learn everything you need to know about film acting. Geraldine Page plays the wife of a cop who dies, and... Some other cops come to the place to search it because he had some stuff on them. And the way she handles them. Her second scene is unreal. One of the best scenes of 1984, without question. Just fantastic. And Emmett Walsh and Kenneth McMillan in this film are both great. And Jack Kehoe's great. How could you have Emmett Walsh and Kenneth McMillan in the same movie? Are you trying to give me a stroke? And Burt Young. Are you fucking God? And everybody really is used well. I love Burt Young's Bed Bug Eddie here. When you hear that cliche, they took my thumbs. Bed Bug Eddie is who they are, and Bed Bug Eddie is the legendary Burt Young. So there you go. Oh, my God. And, and, and as legendary as that line is, I like Eric Roberts' later line, the way he says the word lie. <laughs> Eric Roberts. We've talked about Star 80 and what a phenomenal performance that is. The scene where he shows up here, ruined, swings back and forth between self-pitying and wallowing and screaming and crying and moments of lucidity makes me laugh so fucking hard. There's one great take he does where he's, my thumbs, Charlie, they took my thumb. Hey, did you get a fish? You know why you love that moment? Honestly, you've raised two little boys. And in that moment, I guarantee you his acting note was, 
I'm a six-year-old boy who just broke his leg and doesn't know how to react. And it's one of the funniest, most real moments. And I love Eric Roberts dearly. I know what his later career looks like, and I don't care. I think he gave some truly great performances, and I think he deserves boundless respect for Pope of Greenwich Village. I think everybody does. I think Stuart Rosenberger directed this, who's also the director of Cool Hand Luke. This is a great movie from him, great late-era movie from him, just all the way around. Vincent Patrick's adaptation of his novel is terrific. It is a weird, oddly-shaped little film. It doesn't add up to much, and I don't care. I love it anyway. Yeah, well, Drew, I would like us to keep charting these these Of Mice and Men movies. You're soon getting to Dominic and Eugene. Birdie's another one. Yeah, Racing with the Moon, I think, is a good one. Yeah. This this uh, semi-grounded I- individual trying to find his place connected to an absolute lunatic who doesn't give a shit. Well, you know what? You could almost describe our next film that way as a horror film in which a prominent, respected researcher sees his career utterly derailed and destroyed by his lunatic friend, the classic, the gigantic cultural icon that is. Hello, Ghostbusters. Ghosts, they're real. You do? They're mean. You have? They're here. Someone's got to stop them. It's a job for the Ghostbusters. The best, the only. We came, we saw, we kicked it. Ghostbusters, rated PG. There are very few times when you can go to the movies and know for certain that you're going to have a good time. When it came to Ghostbusters, that's about as mortal of a lock. I mean, Drew, how many bad horror comedies have we seen? We got through Pandemonium. Wacko, Saturday the 14th. I think it was reasonable to be afraid of horror comedy at this point, and for good reason. It's a very difficult balance to strike, although both reactions are so similar. You're, in both cases, chasing the involuntary reaction. And I think if you're good at evoking one, you should be good at evoking the other, shouldn't you? You know me, man. I have a very liberal definition of horror. Now, when you say horror comedy, I don't want to sound like blasphemy here, but... Does Ghostbusters ever really try to be scary? I know that when I first showed it to the boys, I misjudged it. When Sigourney Weaver gets grabbed by the arms out of the chair and she gets pulled into the other room and everything. Yeah, it scared the crap out of them. I think there are moments in the film that play just enough that it lets you know that they're playing with supernatural stuff. The scariest shot in the film is probably the ghost librarian woman. That shot is immediately cut to them, like, looking like the Three Stooges and running off. And this is not a criticism of the movie. Even if it's 100% comedy, it's one of the best comedies of this decade. It's just a blast of fun. I'm just, you know, playing nitpicky with the horror comedy thing. That's well, here's the thing. You, you've got somebody behind this, Dan Aykroyd, who really loves this stuff and respects it and believes in it. And I think from Dan's point of view, the ghost stuff was never meant as a joke or was never meant to be treated as a goof. Dan really believes all this stuff. So when he's talking about Tozer's spirit guide and he's uh, and he's uh, breaking out all the terminology and the jargon there, uh, that's stuff that Dan believes wholeheartedly. And he wrote the first couple of drafts of this thing from a place of absolute conviction. The comedy comes from bumping up against the reality of it. And I think that 
the moments that really work in Ghostbusters are moments where they're experimenting with that tone and they're trying to find where's the line and how far, how goofy can you make a ghost and how real do you make a ghost and how scary do you make a moment? And I almost wrote a book about Ghostbusters. And when I say almost, I mean, I did all the legwork for it and then my job got in the way and I was unable to meet my deadlines and they took all my research from me and they published a book. And the research I did was about a year and a half worth of interviews. I interviewed everybody. I talked to everybody that worked on the original, including Michael Gross before he died. In talking to people about this movie, the thing that I took from it as the miracle of Ghostbusters is that I don't think the film should have worked. I think it is an accidental great movie. This thing is held together by scotch tape and sweat. There are entire sequences that aren't in the right place. There's characters that got cut at the last minute. There's whole subplots that got moved. Remind everyone how the infamous ghost blowjob scene remained in the film. Okay, so early there's a sequence that was supposed to happen early in the film where they actually went to a haunted fort, and they were supposed to stay in the haunted fort overnight. And while they were in the haunted fort, some of the ghosts appeared, and... So that's why in that sequence, if you look, Dan Aykroyd's dressed as like a general. He's got like a uniform on and it's just a uniform he picks up while they're at the fort and he puts it on and then he goes to sleep and he wakes up and there's an actual ghost there. And there was a real ghost blowjob in the original draft. So that scene was shot as a real scene, not as a dream, not as a weird like digression in the middle of a montage. It was so much weirder than that, though. There's characters played by Murray and Aykroyd who got cut out of the movie. There were other characters played by those actors. There was a pair of street hobos that were going to show up as a running sort of Greek chorus throughout the movie. And one of their most famous images of them in still photos is as the demon dogs come running out of Rick Moranis' apartment building, they were going to run right by the two bums played by Murray and Aykroyd. Okay, I would agree with you on the U.S. decision to rebuild Nicaragua. But I disagree on the other thing. I think that a good karate guy is always going to chop a heavyweight boxer. No, no, no. You take any martial artist, black belt, I don't care how good he is, what degree. You put him in a ring with a power puncher like Chuck Wepner, Wepner would devastate him every time. Okay, I agree with that, but I think that Shanghai, Hong Kong, and Kowloon are going to be your three big terrible bargains this year. Run, run! Get out of the way! All that stuff exists. It's somewhere. I've seen stills of it. I know it was shot. But there's whole sequences that got moved. The order of things got changed. What's really remarkable is how Reitman somehow sculpted that film out of that mountain of stuff that wasn't quite working. It was a fast shoot. They had less than a year from when they made the deal to when they had to be in theaters. They didn't have an effects company at the beginning of the production, so they were kind of inventing that as they went. They had nine or ten different companies trying to do individual elements, none of them talking to each other, so nobody knew exactly what anybody else was doing or how anybody else was going to incorporate effects into the movie. I can't imagine making a film like this, and I really can't imagine making a film that 35 years later is beloved and revered, that people know every line of. It's very much the snobs versus the slobs, only now ghosts are involved. The Bill Atherton character is a page taken from the Caddyshack and Stripes, right? So my question to you, Drew, is what is it that made this not just a hit, you know, because, it, okay, it's a good comedy with some very funny actors in it. I get that. Why was it such a juggernaut? The rise of SNL comedy was sort of a thumb in the eye of conventional comedy stars and conventional comedy shapes and forms. And yet 
there have been movies like this. There have been the Ghost Breakers with Hope and Crosby, and you'd had supernatural stuff show up in Three Stooges, and Abbott and Costello obviously at the end of the Universal Monster Cycle did this. But to do it with the effects that were becoming popular in the 80s that were so new and that felt like they nothing had ever been done like this, and to do it with horror effects the way they they were being done at the time, and to mix all that together with this 70s hipster SNL edge to the humor, it was this new take on something that we really hadn't seen in a long time. And I think that combination of things, and in particular, Bill Murray that summer, we've we've talked about how there's that rise of the irreverent guy who doesn't take anything seriously and is constantly diffusing things. And it's not just white guys. Eddie Murphy is this character as well. But Bill Murray in this movie crystallizes that persona so well and so laser specifically right that it's like he's he can't do anything wrong in this film every line out of him was a gigantic audience line there's something unique about bill murray's particular loki laissez-faire like like that chevy chase is a little too abrasive or there's something about bill murray who just nails that disaffected but still compassionate and yet sarcastic i can't imagine anybody else selling he slimed me and having become the cultural moment it did he's like the funny guy you want to impress instead of the funny guy you want to walk away from because sometimes a funny guy is just eh, give it a rest dude sigourney weaver in that film is just terrific and she makes bill murray a credible romantic lead which no one else has ever done I think she's one of the few actors who genuinely played opposite him and gave him a sense that she was giving back and she was not taking his shit and she was playing with him. And their chemistry is off the charts great. And she's able to, with just a pointed smile, sell to the audience that, yes, this beautiful goddess musician might actually be like interested in dating this schlub. That's what's great is she sees through him. She knows what he is, and she lets us know that she knows, and it's okay. Without her as the the credible source of supernatural malfeasance, without somebody we believe, and not only a, a presence that we trust, but an actor who can sell it, you know, the ghost angle of it is never sold. You don't ever buy that there are ghosts in this world unless an actor like Sigourney Weaver introduces it to you and... God, she's good. Look at how wonderful she is with Lewis. She is so funny with Moranis, keeping it at arm's length and not destroying him. She wants to get away from him, but she's not an ass. <laughs> God, she's so good at it. And and Moranis, every time, I still laugh. Every single time she tries to walk by that door and he pops out. And you know he's just been waiting there and listening. And Moranis sells it beautifully. I love him talking to his clients at the party as he brings their coats in and everything and introduces everybody. Again, you, you talk about how characters are what we get attached to in these movies that really become cultural moments. It's everybody in this movie. I, there's one of the reasons that I think the cast is so good is because everybody came in and found something to do. Annie Potts in 99 percent of the versions of this film would have played nothing you would have barely noticed she was in it yet she's hilarious and she stands out and she's interesting and i think her chemistry with uh, harold ramus is endlessly interesting i think harold ramus in this film i am so fascinated by egon as a character and every weird thing he says 
all the little weird asides, all the observational stuff. Gun, this reminds me of the time you tried to drill a hole through your head. Do you remember that? That would have worked if you hadn't stopped no. me. That's the stuff that I love so much. It suggests real life and real history. And To Ramis's credit, he seems to be aware of his range as an actor. This is the perfect role for him. Well, I just love that she pitches Wu at him, and he is so resolutely uninterested. Very handy, I can tell. I bet you like to read a lot, too. Print is dead. <laughs> He's so great. And I do, I, I love all the low-tech, handmade, this was put together in a workshop vibe of the film. All of that adds to why I love Ghostbusters. And it's really no surprise that people are still building proton packs and that still want to carry them around and that there is an attachment to the nuts and bolts of this world. Underappreciated performance in this movie is Ernie Hudson, and I'll tell you why. The other three Ghostbusters are comedians. They're all playing it for laughs. Uh, without the straight man, we're all just trying to get jokes off each other. When he comes in and grounds it and then backs them up, I bought it. When they say it, I'm like, well, these are just the three stooges. His support of them, uh, like Sigourney Weaver, adds some real weight, as does Bill Atherton's performance as this sleazy EPA guy. I really, I admire Hudson for sticking with it because I, I think a lot of actors who had been told they were going to play one part, who show up and the part's been so substantially rewritten and it's really not what you have been offered. Hudson's character was supposed to be ex-military and one of the reasons they hired him was that he was the guy who could handle himself and it was a it was a character. Like there was a lot more meat on the bones of the original Winston and while I think there is something hilarious about Winston's I'll believe whatever you want as long as there's a steady paycheck in it. The original conception gave him a character that Hudson was excited to play. He found a way to still memorably make space for himself when he ended up just playing the straight man. And I think he has one of the best scenes in the movie. Hey, Ray, do you remember something in the Bible about the last days when the dead would rise from the grave? I remember Revelation 7, 12. And I looked as he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became as black as sackcloth, and the moon became as blood. And the seas boiled, and the skies fell. Judgment Day. Judgment Day. Every ancient religion has its own myth about the end of the world. Myth? Ray, has it ever occurred to you that maybe the reason we've been so busy lately is because the dead have been rising from the grave? How about a little music? That scene, again, makes the film's scare stuff a little more grounded, a little more weighty, and it just lets you know that there are stakes. And yeah, I I think without him, you lose a lot. And I don't think they treated him terrifically well while they were making it. But I think to his credit, he knew how to take that and still do something with it. Give it up for Ghostbusters, man. It's a great memory. It's a great movie. And it's fun to revisit it. And I bet it's fun to revisit it with your kids. That would be enough for one day of release. Like, if you release Ghostbusters, you can call it a weekend. You did it. That's it. Hollywood, you win. But there was another movie that came out that weekend that I would say, in its own way, casts just as long a pop culture shadow. Steven Spielberg presents Gremlins. They're clever. They're mischievous. They'll get into the kitchen. The basement. The garage. They'll get into anything. And once they get in, That's a real in my you're in for it. 
and Gremlins. They'll be expecting you. Directed by Joe Dante, rated PG. How often do you get, I mean, we've spent so many episodes berating and lamenting these atrocious combinations of horror and comedy, and then we get Ghostbusters and Gremlins on the same day. Are you kidding me? Ghostbusters, I love a lot. It's a funny, fun crowd pleaser. It's got a good heart. It's got a lot of funny jokes. But I don't have a lot of personal connection with Ghostbusters. It's kind of at arm's length. Gremlins feels like a hug. Joe Dante, by that point, was starting to become one of those secrets. And I've always loved that this was Spielberg's moment to really elevate Dante and give him a platform and let him run. And not the first screenplay by Chris Columbus. The first produced one, of course, was Reckless, which we talked about a couple of months ago. But this was the thing that got him into the studio system. This screenplay was designed as no one's ever going to shoot this, but I'm going to get work out of it. I believe that this was the purge of the 1980s. And by that, I mean, when the purge came out, all we could say is, oh, my God, what a great concept. What a cool idea. What a dark, interesting idea. When in the 80s, what a cool idea. These legendary monsters that we've heard about and now we have these rules and why didn't anybody think of this before why was there not a gremlins movie in the 1940s yeah it's it's a really easy hook it's a really smart hook at the time it was controversial i remember taking my family to see this and uh, there was a pretty heated talk afterwards about how it was inappropriate for my younger sister and how uh, they didn't really like it and they didn't like the sensibility and something about it offended them I got to admit, it made me like it more. Joe Dante rubs people the wrong way sometimes. I I don't agree with your sister's analysis, but I 100% get it. There is something in Gremlins. There's a little dangerous, a little bit dark that only runs through a little thread. But you and I might look at it and go, yeah, I like that darkness. Other people react poorly to that. I'm telling you now, one thing that does not hold up in this movie is how the Gremlins hang this dog on Christmas lights. That is fucked. <laughs> that, that is fucked up. Do well, not. They're, they're bastards. The gremlins are bastards. God bless Joe Dante and Chris Columbus. Fair credit. If you really want to sell that, oh, prior to this moment, you thought these were just playful little monsters. Now that we've shown them try to kill a dog, now what do you think of these monsters? Thankfully, the dog's okay. There's the legendary joke about, uh, not a joke, it's true. In the first draft of this, the one that sold to the studio, there was a scene where the gremlins hit a McDonald's, and when Billy and somebody else run into the McDonald's, they have legendarily eaten everything except the food. They've eaten the customers, the booths, the trap, everything, and left all the McDonald's oh, food yeah, there. Oh, uh, yeah, novelization tidbit. There is some interesting stuff in there. Uh, the Judge Reinhold character who kind of vanishes in the film, uh, there's a bit more as to what happens to him in the bank. So if you're a big fan of Gremlins, you might want to dig up that old novelization. Whereas I think Ghostbusters is a comedy that deals with ghosts. This is an actual horror story that's funny. This is the beginning of, uh, along with a movie that we talked about last month, the end of the old rating system. Because this started a conversation, kind of kick-started the larger conversation that had been brewing for a while. To be clear, we talked about, what, uh, 16 Candles, The Bounty, uh, obviously Temple of Doom, and now Gremlins. I think Temple of Doom and now Gremlins was the exclamation point that said, okay, yeah, you guys are right. I'll tell you what really did it. It was Time Magazine. Because Time Magazine wrote a piece that came out a couple of weeks after these two films opened. It 
laid out why the rating system no longer worked if these films were allowed to be a PG. People have, over the years, conflated that to mean that Spielberg created it or the ratings board was created for those two movies. It's not the case. Those movies became the flashpoint in a conversation that had started in the early 80s. Gene Siskel had been beating this drum. They'd been talking about the R13 and the R14 or R17. They've been talking about all these options. But Gremlins, as much as any of these films, when you look at the violence in Gremlins and you look at how it's handled, it's funny, but it's really gross. And it's on that line where I think it's probably an R, but it's green and black, so it's not like blood blood. And I don't know really what the rating is, and it kind of points out how stupid ratings are. It's interesting that you'd say that, because on one hand, I agree, ratings are stupid, but as the father of two young boys, you have a right to know, is this ultra gory? I, I would much rather just have a list of content. I would just rather have language, violence, whatever. just have a list. I think ratings are stupid, because what does PG mean? PG means something different to you than it does to me or to that person because clearly nobody can agree what a PG or a PG-13 or an R really is. We argue about it nonstop, and we still do. I would much rather just have a list of content as a parent. I've never bought the argument that it's for parents. It's for marketing. That's what it's for. But let us quickly wrap up what we love about Gremlins. It has Joe Dante's darkly comedic, playful streak. Of course, it has Dick Miller. It has the great Polly Holiday. It has Phoebe Cates doing one of the most hilarious, dark... I, I don't know if people make fun of this speech or if they legitimately think it's scary. I don't know that it's scary. It's a great moment, and it's a terrific actor's moment. I've heard people call it atrocious screenwriting. They argued about it all the way through production and almost didn't put it in. And here's the thing. I didn't show the kids Gremlins until last year and not because of the violence. The only reason I kept it off the docket was I waited until they didn't believe in Santa Claus anymore. Ah, I can't show you can't show this film to a kid who still believes in Santa. You cannot. It's criminal. That whole anecdote that she tells is almost a direct statement of this movie is not for children. Oh, no, it's a Gay and Wilson cartoon. That is as dark as dark gets. I enjoy it as a, a grown-up horror fan, but I wouldn't want a 10-year-old to hear a woman tell that story that's in Gremlins. <laughs> I don't think anybody ever promised you that it was for... Again, this is why I think the ratings are so insane, and we'll continue to talk about this, but no one ever promised anybody this was for children. What is it about small creatures that implies... That it's for kids. I think that's what I don't it know, is. but it's but it's a crazy thing that happens with parents. They get upset about something that was never promised to them. And I think it was the combination of Spielberg's name and a PG. PG does say parental guidance suggested. You should see it first is what that really means. See it and decide. Does your kid need help with this film? That's what it ultimately, but that's never how they take it. And I, as a theater manager, as a projectionist, as somebody who dealt with the public, and I have heard crazy shit come out of parents about ratings. And the trust and the weird relationship they have with them is unhealthy. And part of it is they get these ideas in their head that the rating promised them something. And if it doesn't fulfill that, oh my God, do they melt down. Gremlins, though, is a really good movie. And I love that it made people crazy. To me, that's part of what's great about it. And that is Joe Dante all over. You know, Joe loved every meltdown that ever happened about this. And the Chris Wayless stuff in this is I, I've seen some of the uh, actual puppets up close. They it's amazing how well they've held up. They still exist and they're still you can still look at them up close and they're. 
these things were built on several different scales. There's giant gizmos they used and little tiny gizmos and puppet gizmos and electronic It's fascinating that any of this ever worked. They put a lot of this stuff off till the end of the shoot, shot all the human stuff out first, and then put aside weeks where they could just go in and build gags. And that final bar scene, the big bar scene where Phoebe Cates is trapped in the bar and the gremlins are going crazy, there's 9 million gags, 9 million sight gags. As they were shooting, they actually just had a they had a jar, and they just had a thing where if you had a gag, you could write it on a piece of paper and put it in the jar, and then they try to find a place for it in the bar at the end. And they just kept building gremlins and building puppets and building gags. And it's one of the reasons the film feels like a live-action cartoon is I think Dante really encouraged that, and he encouraged it from everybody on set. And people really got entertained by these things they were building, and I think they really found ways to play with them. And it's not often that you set your puppeteers and your creators free while you're shooting to explore every possible crazy idea. And I think the film benefits from that. And I think that's Dante. He, he is that guy as a director who wants all the good ideas from everybody in every department and encourages that. And I think he's a great audience first. You can almost hear Joe Dante laughing at the edge of frame during most of this movie about what he's getting away with. Might not be my very favorite Dante, but it's up there with the burbs and inner space and howling and so many others. Something that millions of movie fans have noticed. All you need to do is see at least two Joe Dante films, and you will notice that there is a real playfulness you see in early Spielberg films and, and later, but more so in his early stuff, where He's not just making good movies. He's making fun movies. He's, ha you know, like he knows what he's doing and it's fun. And June, boom, we got it done. Holy shit. Thank you so much. Your support is the reason that we keep doing this. And the excitement you have had building up to this episode is one of the reasons that we took it as seriously as we did. Your continued Patreon support. We deeply appreciate your ongoing support, both as Patreon supporters and just in general. The fact that you guys continue to, to carry the word about the, the podcast. I'm watching new people discover it and start to catch up, and that is always entertaining. Thank you for that. We have a great rest of 1984 coming. We are halfway through the year now. Next month is one of the weirdest months of the year. There's a few films you know. There's a lot of little stuff you've never heard of. And then it is from there for the rest of the year, a crazy barrage of material. All I'm going to say is we have prints next month, and that's pretty exciting. So uh, we will see you then for August of 1984. <laughs>